<laughs> yes, you can listen to it. It gets uploaded later. Okay. Um, how many of you, by show of hands, are from Niswa? Like, you live in Niswa. All right, cool. I, I mean, I don't, I shouldn't have my hands raised. Um, what about Brainerd? All right, it's pretty even there. Baxter? Not many. I live in Baxter. What about, uh, Pequot? Obviously, Pequot. <laughs> okay, so Pequot is representing. That's, like, the most here so far. What about... Let's go the other way. Breezy Point. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, now let's go the other direction. What about, like, Crosby? Any Crosby? Ironton. <laughs> oh, no. Pillager. Uh, Jenkins. Oh, man. Jenkins. Wow. I'm surprised nobody's from over there. Um, I know we had a couple. We have a couple of students from, like, Iron T. Ironton. What? Pine River? All right, cool, cool. So yeah, we got a lot of people from around here. Um, you wouldn't say that any of those places are very big. You know, we live in what's called, it's, whenever somebody refers to any one of these towns, not to say that Brainerd is better than all of them, but people usually call it the Brainerd Lakes area just because it's 18 million towns within a huge, it's like entire central Minnesota. And so that's pretty much what people refer to it as. Um, and they're all just really small towns, and Brainerd somehow ends up being the biggest. Um, I grew up in Baxter. So growing up in Baxter, uh, Baxter has grown tremendously over the last 20 years. Like, ask some of your older leaders who've been here for a while and been in the area for a while. They can tell you that it is unrecognizable from what it was even 20 years ago. Uh, it's probably gained 5,000 population at least within 20 years, pretty close to it. It was probably close to around, even 30 years ago, maybe about 2,000 people, and now it's closer to seven or 8,000, so it's grown a lot. Um, just to kind of give you an idea, to Highway 210, that one where, you know, there's the 371 highway that the church is on, and then you go into town, and there's Highway 210, that intersection right there, we're kind of where Costco is. There's Kohl's, railroad tracks, all that sort of stuff, um, where Costco is. Um, there's a bunch of stores there, all right? None of those used to exist there, okay? <laughs> so that intersection was pretty relatively barren, except there was Paul Bunyan right there where Kohl's is. Did you, anybody know that Paul Bunyan was there? Yep. Yeah. It was crazy. The golf, <laughs> the golf course. I forgot about the golf course. That was over. Um, there was uh, that two, Highway 210. You know how it's got two lanes and two lanes, so it's like a four-lane sort of thing? That used to be just one going one way, one going the other way. And there was a four-way stop <laughs> at one point on one of those that's now a light. Um, and I actually live in that neighborhood. And it was a four-way stop up until you got to that light, um, the intersection, and it was a nightmare until they made it larger there. Um, but Baxter was small, really small, and it didn't actually start to really grow until they put in that bypass. Um, so most of the time when you would coming up from the south, southern Minnesota, you'd have to drive up, and you'd have to go all the way through Brainerd, hit every single light. It would make the trip take 20 to 25 minutes longer because you'd have to go forever through Brainerd until you can finally be on your way um, to 371 or wherever you're going north. Um, and then they put in this bypass that you could skip all of Brainerd and go right through Baxter, and you're good to go. So, <laughs> And what that did is it 
turned everybody away from Brainerd, put people into Baxter, and then a lot of businesses started coming into Baxter because there was more people filtering through, filtering through Baxter. So basically, just one small change, or you can consider it a large change, put Baxter kind of on the map and made it a little bit bigger, and now it's thriving. This is going to make sense in just a second. So <laughs> we're in Mark chapter 6, um, page 841 in your golden, golden yellow Bibles. And we're going to start on mustard Bible, sure, though like mustard seed. Ah. <laughs> so um, we're starting in verse 1. So I'm just going to read this real quick. It says, he went, uh, Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters uh, here with us? Um, and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So the reason why I talked about the towns and how we kind of lived in a small, small area, um, well, you live in a big area with many small towns, um, is because Nazareth was a very small town. In fact, we wouldn't even really have known about Nazareth, really. The only reason why we know is because Jesus is from there. That's really the only reason why it's mentioned. It's only mentioned in the Bible when it's talking about Jesus specifically and for no other reason for the most part. Um, the population of Nazareth was probably about the size of Pillager, if you think about it. Um, so about 500 people-ish. Uh, so if you were to take the graduating class of Brainerd High School, which is around 500 or so, and you put them all into like the marketplace just down the road in Niswa, and that was Nazareth, pretty much. Maybe a little bit bigger, but pretty close to about that. So everybody knew each other for the most part. If you didn't know somebody's name, you knew, you recognized them. You're like, oh, yeah, I know that person. So that's how tightly knit these people were. So when they, when they talk about Jesus, like, hey, aren't you, aren't you that carpenter guy, um, son of Mary? Mary was more known in the area, apparently, than, than Joseph. At least Mary was known more than... Pretty much, she was no more than Joseph just for this, the people that Mark was writing to for the, you know, the sake of the story here. So, aren't you the son of Mary? Um, isn't your brothers and sisters, aren't these people? So, they pretty much knew him and they knew everybody of him. And he was just this carpenter. All of a sudden, he's coming back into town and preaching all these things and telling them that they're not living their lives correctly. And they're like, well, who, who are you? You're not, I mean, you're not like... You're not a priest. You're not this, you know, this guy. And it actually says that they took offense. Or not, well, well, yeah, they took offense at him. The word used in this passage for they took offense actually means, well, it, it's more directly translated as a stumbling block. So in Christianity, when we talk about a stumbling block, right, we talk about something that's like a sin in our life, something that is preventing us from living the way that we should as Christians, right? That's kind of how we refer to in the 
Christianese language of a stumbling block, something that's preventing us from faith. And so their unbelief and them taking offense at Jesus all of a sudden coming in and saying all these things is their stumbling block. It's preventing them from believing. And Jesus is actually like, I'm performing all these miracles in front of you, teaching with authority. I'm healing the sick and all these sorts of things. And you still don't believe because I'm Mary's son? You know, and because I'm the brother of James and, and Judas and all these people? And he's like, what in the world? So he kind of just kind of walks aside. I can kind of relate to this. Not, I'm not relating myself to Jesus, but I am relating in the sense that my mom is a teacher in the area. Okay? So... Or she, she's been a teacher in the area for about over the twenty over twenty years. How many of you has like how many of you have a mom who knows everybody in the world, basically, right? You go out and you want to buy a loaf of bread or something, and a five minute thing takes three hours because your mom has to talk to everybody and their brother's cousin, like they know everybody. And that happens with me with my mom because she'll, like, go around and all of a sudden she sees a student from 20 years ago and she recognizes them somehow, you know, because somehow they look exactly the same, you know, from when they were 9 years old to where they're 29 years old. And she has to stop and chat. And they recognize her because somehow she also hasn't aged in 20 years. So (laughs) she always still looks pretty much the same as she did then. And so this five-minute errand becomes forever. So... When I go out, and when I came back, because I lived in the state of Virginia for about eight years, and then when I moved back here, and even before that, whenever I came, you know, I was there, somebody would recognize me, and they're like, they wouldn't know my name. They would say, you're, you're Helen's son. I'm like, yes, yeah, you know, but I'm, I'm a human, and I'm my own person. My name is Chris, you know, so um, I've experienced this, and it's almost like it's a discredited to me that I'm not my own person. I'm just defined based on my mom, which is fine. My mom's a great human being. I love my mom, but at the same time, it's like, I, I know things, okay? You know, I'm not just defined by my mom. <laughs> so that's kind of what Jesus is experiencing here, and people are just kind of writing him off as this, you know, Mary's kid, you know, sort of thing. So, and then he goes out in the other villages and saying, oh, well, maybe they'll listen to me. So, uh, Verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, uh, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, um, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should, or that, then proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So now Jesus is like, okay, well they're not going to listen to me. Maybe they'll listen to you. And we know that the disciples have gone out like this in similar fashion before, right? So we we learn that in previous chapters and verses that the disciples were sent out by Jesus to anoint and cast out demons. But now Jesus is like, okay, well, go wear a shirt and maybe some sandals, and here's a stick. You know, don't bring money, don't bring food, very minimal. They're not to bring anything. The idea here is 
There's a couple of different thoughts on it, but the idea here is they're supposed to look like they're very humble. The term would be meek, right? That they're supposed to be relying on God to provide and that they would go out and people would see perhaps the need of them, that they are closed without any money and that they would have them into their house so that they could share with them. And Jesus said, if they invite you in, but they do not listen to you, then you are to leave, shake off the dirt and the carpet, and head out as a testimony against them, right? So that would be a little bit rude if you came into somebody's house and was like, kicked off the dirt in there and just left, right? You would think that's rude, but in those times, that was considered, you know, it would be a testimony against them, like, well, you didn't want me in here anyway, so bam. And Jesus quite frankly, was kind of fed up with them at this time anyway because they weren't accepting him or what he had to say. So he was just like, well, they had their chance, right? Now, this is also a massive responsibility that the disciples have been given. Remember, they don't even fully understand who Jesus is yet. They're gradually becoming, starting to understand, um, but they're not quite there yet, okay? They have done this a few times, and it seems like Jesus is also preparing them to share the gospel, you know, to go out like they did in Acts, okay? Um, throughout Acts, they go out and they start the church. So it's like they're starting, he's starting to prepare them a little bit more for the church. So it's a huge responsibility. How many of you have taken on a lot of responsibilities that you don't think you've been prepared, maybe not prepared for? I know there's a few of you in here when we talk about school, um, I know that I have, um, especially in college, I took on a few responsibilities um, in the sense that I was going to school full-time in college and working 60 hours a week, and I burnt myself out, and it was the worst, worst year in my life. It was so hard, and it was just too much. It was a lot of responsibility. I was doing ministry at the same time as well, and I, just, I was surviving off of like three or four hours of sleep every night. It wasn't good. Um, so it was a lot of responsibility. I did get through it, and I really had to rely on God. So it's kind of a thing is he's giving us responsibility, and he's equipping them for the gospel. Now, this next section, <laughs> it relates, but it doesn't relate so much with the, with the next one. And I don't really want to read it because it's extremely long. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize it a little bit for you. Um, it's kind of a good story. It's a cool story. It's almost like if you know what a Greek tragedy is, it's kind of like a Greek tragedy. So Herod, King Herod, remember Herod is the one that wanted to have Jesus killed when he was a baby, right? And now it's 30 years later, and he didn't know who Jesus was. He probably assumed that Jesus had been killed when he was a baby because Jesus was supposed to be the next king that, was, that he had heard about. So there's King Herod. And he hears about Jesus. And all of his, you know, advisors and people around him are saying, well, have you heard of this Jesus guy? I think that he might be Elijah come back, Elijah the prophet. Or he's just another prophet, you know, a new prophet that's come back after many, many, many years. And the popular consensus was that he was John the Baptist who was raised from the dead. So John the Baptist at this time had already been killed. So it actually talks about a little bit about John being killed, and Herod bought into the idea that, well, this must be John the Baptist who's back the, from the dead whom I had put to death, right? The story behind that, and that's what it talks about here, is Herod had heard about John the Baptist. He liked John the Baptist. He heard from his teaching. He wanted to learn from him, 
and, but Herod also fell in love with his brother's wife, okay? And John was like, no, that's not lawful. Don't do that. That's bad. Stop it. Herod obviously didn't like that because he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. So he's like, well, I'm going to arrest you. Herodias, which was his brother's wife, um, was even more upset. Um, but Herod didn't want to kill him because he actually still kind of respected him as a holy man and thought, well, maybe I shouldn't kill him. So he just arrested him, put him in jail, and then he was kind of at his beck and call for whenever he wanted to talk to him and learn from him. But he was still very confused with things that John the Baptist had to say because he would hear things about this next person who's coming, you know, the sort of thing that John the Baptist was talking about, referring to Jesus. And one day, um, it is Herod's birthday, and he has this massive party fit for a king. Right? There's cake and cookies, total feast, there's dancing, music, and Herodias' daughter, now think about this, Herodias' daughter would now be Herod's stepdaughter, who is also his niece. Okay? Weird. Okay? Goes out and dances in front of everybody at this party. And it pleased him and everybody around, and Herod makes the massive mistake of saying, I will give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. So whatever you want, I will give you. Well, she didn't know what she wanted, so she goes to her mom, Herodias, who, remember, holds a massive grudge against John the Baptist. She does not like John the Baptist at all because he said it is not lawful for you to marry Herod because, you know, that's his brother. And, yeah. So she doesn't like him, so she goes... Have him give you John the Baptist's head. Okay? So the daughter then runs back to Herod, all excited, and says, I know what I want. I want John the Baptist's head immediately on a platter. And Herod regrets it. He's like, Man, I should not have promised that. That was a massive mistake. But he didn't want he wanted to save face. He didn't want to go back on his word in front of all of his friends and all of his advisors and people who were there. So he says, okay. So he gives the order and chops off um, John the Baptist's head and brings it to her. And that is how John the Baptist died. And basically, he is thinking that, oh, well, I killed him, and now he's raised from the dead because he was a holy man. He had this sort of concept of raising from the dead. He kind of got it, but he obviously didn't fully get it. So um, this must have been something that he had heard from John the Baptist, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but he still didn't get it, so he just thought it was John come back. Which is kind of a good thing if you think about it, because if he knew if it was if he knew it was Jesus and he knew who Jesus was, then he would have gone out and tried to kill him because Jesus was that king that he tried to kill 30 years ago. So that's kind of a story there. It's a long story. I didn't want to read it out, so I thought it would be better if I just told you about it. Um, the idea is, have you ever made a promise that you regretted making? I think we all have made some promises that we regret made, making. Not that promises are bad, but if we make a promise, that is something that we don't really fully think through, that we know that we can't keep just on a basic level, or we just don't think through it all the way, then it can kind of come back to bite us in the butt. And then this is one of those cases where it really, really nipped at Herod there, and he made a massive mistake. So he was very much regretted that. Um, so that's something that we can talk about a little bit in our groups. 
Um, I want to pray for us real quick, and we'll get back into our groups. Father God, I just thank you so much for this uh, group of students. Uh, thank you for having so much fun, how awesome it is um, that we're able to come here and learn about your word. Um, I pray that we're able to have a fruitful discussion, talk about responsibility, talk about um, how we can come together as Christians to make sure that we're living in a way that is glorifying to you, Lord. So thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.